Thank you for downloading this podcast, and well done on being the kind of cool person who downloads podcasts. This one's pretty simple. It's basically a ruse for me to meet and chat to writers that I like. I am, in one sense, very proud of all the work that I've done. I also feel intense shame about everything that I've ever written in the past, and I think that's probably what... Like, I approach every new play with, I won't fuck it up this time. The best way to... um explore politics and ideas is through stories through cause and effect and consequences and human action and i think you can only achieve that level that you know arthur miller did or anyone else did is if you have a satisfying story that through the deeds of human beings reveals the ideas of the politics i'm an entertainer and i'm trying to entertain people with whatever i'm doing whether it's a serious novel or it's being on stage doing a one-man show or python or whatever that's what it all boils down to your own fucking ego. <laughs> In this first episode, Lucy Kirkwood, writer of NSFW about the magazine industry, Chimerica, a US-China thriller which won the Olivier Award for Best New Play, and The Children, which was recently on at the Royal Court, about old nuclear scientists returning to their blown-to-pieces former place of work. I want to start off with something which I read in the past few days, that you sit in the toilet when one of your shows is on, and then you sort of overhear what mm-hmm. people are saying as they filter in, in the interval. When did that the, start? The ladies' toilets. The I ladies' toilets, specific, obviously, yes. But there is um, limited espionage. That started, I think, probably when I did the show with Clean Break at the Arcola. Uh, or maybe, I mean, it would have happened at the gate by default because it's such a small place. Working in small theatres, you become aware that that's where you get the really unfiltered opinion. Mm. And also, I like, I'm not very interested in the things people think the second the lights come up. I'm interested in the things they think a couple of minutes after they've had a time for that, for the effect of the, of the, of the um, end of a play to settle on them. Yeah. So it's quite a good, it, it suits me and it, and it, and it means you, and you, you get really honest, uh, yeah, unfiltered is the best way to describe it, um, reactions to what you've done. But they must have said some horrible things as well. Thanks. That's no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I think that's maybe why I specified the ladies' losers. I don't know what goes on in the, in, the, in the gents, but no talking. You <laughs> no talking, no talking for a start. But I've been quite interested and mindly shocked during the children how quickly people are, how quickly people are ready with an opinion the moment the lights come up. And that that to me has changed since um, I did Chimerica. Yeah. I think the immediacy of needing to have something vacuum-packed and digested by the time that you've got your coat on is a new development, and that's just that's just my own observation. But having said that, actually, I think audiences are incredibly generous and come to the theatre with an open heart, and so often a lot of those conversations you'll hear in the toilets are about people trying to find what they liked about it, trying to find their point of connection with the person they're talking to about, and often they'll disagree on everything, but they'll have liked that bit with the dancing or whatever it is and and so that, that, and that so it's always interesting I think and the image of you in a cubicle pretending <laughs> to have a wee listening to what people are saying made me think of I can't remember who said it but it's just a general thing that people say in that playwrights and screenwriters creative people generally are observers rather than participators Oh, I don't. I don't think I agree with that. And I think, well, I, I think you have to be very good at observing and at, at seeing people. And but I also think. I don't think you can be looking through the plate glass window at the rag and bone shop of the heart, can you? You have to kind of have bought a ticket to it as well. So, um, yeah, if anything, anything, I think I probably, that's something I'm really conscious of as you get older and maybe you have a more settled life or or, or a more 
family-based life, how you continue to live in the world in a way that doesn't you don't fall into a routine where you're just sort of on your own in a desk confab, you know uh, manufacturing things from just your own exp- I don't know you're not not just your own experiences but your own your a pre-existing set of perceptions of the world I suppose about having your perceptions jagged all the time and 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 enlivened and how do you do that by nature I can be a really successful hermit I'm very happy on my own I'm very happy and so a lot of for me it's about going I'm going to do well that can be like the small that can be I'm going to join the beekeeping group or it can be I'm going to go and walk around London all day or it can be I'm going to go and travel somewhere or any of those things that just force you to to be in the world rather than just just spectating I think but it's part of that with an eye to with the need to harvest material thinking I should do that because that might that might turn into something no because it doesn't work that that's the the trajectory or the um, the cause and effect relationship is not a straight line. It's not that I'll sit on a bus and I'll hear a conversation or have a three act play at the end of the journey. It's that'd be nice though. <laughs> it'd be I'd be gorgeous. I bet there's playwrights who I'd be really jealous of who do who are able to do that. I'm sure. Like, but for me, it's much more oblique. The connections. It's just like, oh, what was it? Um, I was walking through. I was uh, walking through London yesterday, and I like. Um, and I've been really stuck on something for a scene for the um, play I've got coming up at the National. And and I walked past this group of girls and three of them said the same, they were like chanting, they said something at the same time. And I just suddenly went, oh yeah, it's a chorus. Like that, and it, do you know what I mean? Like that that was, and it isn't, it's, the scene is nothing to do with teenage girls. It's just like, I suddenly got a theatrical image in my head that was to do with like three people saying the same thing at the same time. So I, I, and it suddenly solved the problem. So it's not, there's no play in those three girls. There probably is, but that, I haven't got a play from them. But there has just been a sort of infusion. Something's brewed in the right. A chemical reaction's happened. And you mentioned there something you've got upcoming at the National and you've mentioned Chimerica and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I just want to take you back to when you first went to a theatre. Did you? Did your parents take you regularly? Was that the kind of upbringing you had? Yeah, I was really lucky that I had... Um, parents who did st- I, I not to new writing theatre really not to wouldn't be to the Royal Court or to, but I, but I grew up with theatre being something that was an accessible place to me I can really remember coming in primary school coming back from seeing Wind in the Willows at the National and trying to make a revolving make a revolving drum stage like a sort of puppet theatre with a, it was like the only puppet theatre in the class with a revolve <laughs> Um, and and that if just... a careers advisor didn't see that and think that's going somewhere, we're bad at their job. <laughs> this this person should not be a stagehand. Like, <laughs> yeah. This person is because it was a, mechanically inept. It was really not a successful <laughs> revolve. And then my first when I was you know my first play we had a revolve and it broke down halfway through the first performance. So I think that's a lesson to me that I should not go. I should not make my own revolves anyway. There's a perfectly good one at the at the national. So yeah, so so but I did write. I always wrote a lot, and I often wrote kind of short stories or prose or um, uh, things like that. And then and liked acting in theatre as you lots you know that's that's often people's access at school isn't it you go do you want to be in the christmas show or be in this or that so i did a lot of acting and and then when i went to uni that's when i really started writing for the stage and was your interest at the beginning about plot was it about character was it about the, the mm. pattern of dialogue what was the thing that that got you interested or or made you interested i think still even though the first play was not brilliantly executed was this with the revolve no. Yeah, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, that, that had the revolving, yeah. If I look at it from an objective viewpoint of it being 
over 10 years ago, I can observe there is an interest in uh, the sort of nexus between a large expanding idea, character for sure, and then also a very shaky grasp of narrative. But I can see, I can definitely see idea and character. And when you say a big, large unfolding idea, is that just a revelation? What is that? It's just an idea that has like potency. I always think like for something, for sort of some, for an idea to hold up a, a play, it sort of has to have roots that go very deep and branches that go very high. So it's, and I don't know how to put that any more articulately because it's something quite. Uh, whimsical perhaps even about maybe even just intellect and emotion but I mean, that in that particular play it was some, it was a, a fairly old hat idea now which was um, about a girl who claimed to be having an immaculate conception I suppose it's quite appropriate for our post-truth age someone someone uh, committed to a clearly implausible lie what that meant for her and the people around her and why she might have done that and all those sorts of things. And was that structure something that you had admired from plays you've seen or read? No, because at that set, I mean, I I was doing a lot of reading of plays because I did because I did English literature at uni, and we were made, we were doing a lot of theatre. But I don't think that was a that's probably something in the poetry of the idea that I found that I that, that connected to other writers I admired at the time. What's described as your breakout play by reviewers? It felt empty when the heart went at first, but it is all right now. Did you feel at that point like you'd nailed it, you knew what you were doing? Did you feel like you weren't any longer on a kind of apprenticeship or, or sort of hobbling it together? I, ne- I mean, I don't feel like that now. Oh. I really do. I mean, I, maybe that's just unnecessary indulgence. Though, but I always think you just sort of start again because you're not writing the same play again. So it's I, as much as there, there are like various aspects to the craft, which you hope, I certainly think I have more craft now for sure. And at that point, had acquired more craft than in the previous years, and you are constantly acquiring more craft. I don't know. I think I always think it's a bit like sort of carp. If you were thinking about a carpenter, it's it's you've made a beautiful table, and now you've got to make a chair. And as much as you might employ some of the same and lots of the same skills or lots of the same instincts, then you've still got to find out how to do a different set of joints. And, and maybe you're going to do like a Picasso chair instead, rather than like <laughs> <laughs> just legs going off at different yeah. angles and all that kind of thing. So, but describe this particular chair, then that play, then so, what, yeah. what was it, and um, and how did you come to write it? So that play started with um, a relationship with Lucy Morrison, who uh, was very brilliant literary manager at the time at Clean Break and just an open prov- provocation which was to write a play about women in the criminal justice system. And explain what cr- Clean Break is. Sorry, yeah, that's a really good point. So Clean Break is a really brilliant organisation based in illust- illustrious Kentish Town. Um, Kentish Town. <laughs> and it works with women um, both in and out of prison. So it's an education centre in Kentish Town but we also take work into prisons, we tour work that we make and offer workshops in various things, writing, acting, but also anger management, things like that. It's quite an unusual company because it's got those two, it's got an education strand and an artistic strand. So the provocation from Lucy was to write a play about women in the criminal justice system. The thing that ended up jump-starting the play was we went to see an exhibition that was in Trafalgar Square that was organised by the Helen Bamber Foundation. And it was about human trafficking. And it was just like a container and it was just you just sort of went in one end of the container and it was divided up into sections and one of the sections was just a sort of working girl's room. It was really a basic kind of uh, setup, but it was it was like a working room and it just was the detail of it, the, the sort of the set design was very beautiful because there were just things like a two, you know, lipstick on the on the mantelpiece that was half used. But then the really crude but effective thing was that it was a sort of horrible manky maybe slightly over-the-top cigarette-stained 
single bed in the corner and suddenly it would just start going boom, 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 boom and just like like you sort of as if it was being sort of banged against the wall <laughs> yeah that's exactly the face that's the <laughs> um radio reaction yeah. um, um it's and it was and it really just it was such an effective little it was just it, and it just made me imagine the woman i just sort of that woman and i started reading a, a lot and looking lucy and i together looked a lot into detention centers. what happens to women when they're rescued from a situation like that and actually what happens to them is they end up on the wrong side of the criminal justice system because a lot most of them are, are i'm doing air quotes illegal so they end up in yarl's so they end up being criminalised at the point. So, so the, that paradox got its hooks into my brain. The idea of having been a victim of not just a crime, but actually a really fucking horrible crime. And at the point that we might term rescue, you are criminalised yourself. And what that would do to you and what the effect of that on, on someone's mental health was something that was just sort of wouldn't let go of my brain. So I said to Lucy, can I, can we, can I write the play about this? And she said, yeah. So I just wrote the first I think I wrote the first act and we did it as a like a sort of um work in progress curtain raiser for Chloe Moss's brilliant play This Wide Night which was on at the Soho at that point and then and then it just grew from there and I wrote the first two acts quite quickly and then wasn't quite sure what the third act was and then we did we've been doing work with the Poppy Project a really brilliant organization who work with women who are survivors of torture and of uh, of um trafficking I just suddenly like all the women we met had these sort of extraordinary like not bravado but just sort of I suddenly went oh god the reason you're here is because you were like braver and more imaginative than anyone else in your hometown so like that again was another paradox where I was like by definition the women who've been sort of broken the most were the ones who were the strongest to begin with because they never would have tried to make this journey and come over here if they hadn't been so so then it was about imagining sort of her before and her so that's how that struck you. And it had a slightly surreal edge as well. Yeah. Which, uh, you mentioning that bed that goes... Yeah. But that, is that where that came from? Yeah, and I think it came from the Arcola being so generous and gives us mad, enormous space. Lucy's directing of it, combined with getting Chloe Lamford, who's such a brilliant designer, to... And I always think she's so, Chloe's got this sort of brilliant artist's brain as well as being a brilliant designer. And just so she just sort of lent into the nightmarish quality of what that character was experiencing... And in the step, I mean, the stage directions have got that sort of um, uh, surreal um, edge to them as well, because I, because I suppose it was just about what does it feel like to be in that system and in that kind. It must just to lose control over your own life in any way, just must just feel like there are forces acting on you and things, and the world is not behaving how you want it to behave. And just explain how that manifested itself on stage. Sorry, yeah. yeah. So, so the end of the first act is um, it, there's a there's sort of. Uh, vent falls off the wall and there was a so in the particular production that we had she sort of crawled that was her sort of escape at the end of the first act she crawled into this vent and then you went into the next room and you could see her moving through this glass this perspex tunnel and it was really really beautiful and she was going to Brighton so Chloe made these beautiful sort of little models of the Brighton Brighton Pier and the seafront and everything and you then you move through a really nightmarish room that was just completely full of sort of children's toys and things like that on chains just and then went through into a a detention center which has had a very sort of Alice in Wonderlandy kind of perspective trick sort of and it, it, it was very long very very long room and the final room was in a it, it was it was um sort of a living room in a field but it had um it just everyone sat on white goods which was I really loved which was a really beautiful touched by Chloe. And how much of that was in the stage directions? The, the moving through the rooms in the, in the vent and all of that? Um, the 
the essence is in there. So it does it just say she moves and she and she um it doesn't say they sit on white goods, but I think it does say that she's in a she's hoovering a field. I always view stage directions as sort of provocations and I never like I I never I don't think I ever expect them to be taken literally and then I'm always quite excited when they are. I mean, I always think if you can get a sense of what I mean by this, it's about it's about giving you a, a little bit of poetry to work with rather than me going there are two chairs and a do you know what I mean it's I, I just think most stage direction stage designers are so brilliant artists in their own right that I want to give them something something to, chew to respond on. to imaginatively rather than prescriptively and was this the time that offers of tv and screen work started knocking I think I might have already been doing yeah I, I was already doing skins before that I'd been working on that for a couple of years, actually, by the time I did it for Empty, because they were quite front-footed as well about having young people on board. I think I'd only been out of uni about a year when I joined Skins. I don't know, I think I was quite cool enough as a teenager for Skits, for Skins. I think I think it might, if it had been based on my teenage... I don't know, it would have been a lot more cider drinking on curbs if it had just been... <laughs> and I'm going to jump a little bit forward to NSFW. Oh, yeah. That came from... A number of things. Um, one was sort of very prosaically a literal anecdote I was told by someone about uh, working at a magazine and about a, a problem that had arisen. And that rubbed up against me thinking, so to speak, me thinking a lot about um, working culture for young people and work and what work had become and the fact that you were sort of, you had to work for free to get work and the far, sort of the bizarre, you know, that's the farcical situation of that. Um, and the plays in a men's magazine where a sort of yes. competition goes awry yeah so there's been uh they've run a sort of high street honey type comp competition and uh, just announced their winner and having done that in the context of a sort of failing print media all those pressures and um discover near the end of the first act that the winner is 14 so and they've published this topless photograph of her um so 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 yeah and it's sort of it starts it's a sort of play i would describe as a play that gets less funny as it goes along intentionally because because it sort of was i think it almost like changes genre almost as it goes along i wouldn't like it's not like a con i don't go through and go or this needs to gag up yeah yeah, i would never do that but I, i i noticed that my instinct is to Leaven, and with that in particular, that was a conscious because there's a particular kind of humour at the very top of that play, which is not really my normal kind of humour. It's a little bit more. Um, I think it almost feels like a sitcom at the top of that play, and then that dissipates. I, I think, and that partly is because I was very keen for this that play to reach particularly teenagers. And there is, and I just noticed there is something you can do with comedy, something you can do with broad comedy, particularly that makes teenagers go, "Oh, this is for me." Like this, I'm allowed to laugh. I'm in a theatre, but this is I'm relaxed and I'm laughing, and that means that then you've got them and you've got them by the hand quite firmly. You can take them to a more thinky, <laughs> a place that's maybe um, darker or more intellectually complicated or challenging or difficult or uncomfortable because you've got because they feel. This is for me. And as explained, because the play does deal with some um, quite controversial topics, was there a sense, especially with the humour, of you having your cake and eating it in terms of you're making a comment about the jokes they're making and some of the things that they're saying, but at the same time you get to get the laugh from it? Well, a laugh in a theatre is a charged thing, isn't it? I think that's what's interesting, is because because you can hear everyone else laughing or not laughing. 
So I was very interested in the children, the way that, that um, I noticed over the preview week, certainly when Robin wrote a speech that one of the characters has about burying some cows. And, and this from, is the play about three um, it's a play retired... about three retired nuclear uh, engineers. And one of them, it turns out, has been spending his days burying a rad- dead irradiated cows, which to me is sort of the saddest thing I've ever written. <laughs> I don't, like, I, I, and in rehearsal, I just used to sit there and because it, because it was acted by Ron Cook, who is a beautiful, beautiful actor. I used to, he really moved me. And then we got to like, and then the first night, I think that's how it was received. And then like second night, there was this enormous laugh on that. And I thought... It's God, a good joke. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I don't understand it as a joke. Like that's, that's what's interesting. It's like, to me, that's not, I was like, I'm like, this, this, this is like a symptom of like, terrible terrible crippling depression this man is spending his days burying cows on his own at the risk of his health because he's going back into a sort of fallout zone yeah so i i so it's like i don't i'm sorry i'm not so i do understand why it's funny like but that the laugh is interesting because the laugh is doing lots of things the laugh is saying it's okay for for, saying it's funny right saying the idea of a man burying a cow is a funny image it's telling everyone around them that they remember the moment the cows were mentioned earlier and when the cows mentioned earlier, they, everyone thought they were alive. So uh, they're saying, I'm listening and I'm paying attention and here I am. And I, aren't we in a room together experiencing this? Which is a lovely reason for a laugh. It's great. It's also saying Ron Cook is a beautiful actor and I want to show him how much I appreciate that. And in the last few minutes, we've we've jumped from um, people being sex trafficked to um, interns at a magazine to a group of retired nuclear engineers. Yeah. Do you, especially now when you look across the spread, I've, I've got here a sort of apology <laughs> of, your, of your plays. Do, do you realise that you're, do you think you're purposefully trying to move into different topic areas and uh, into different worlds mm. and not get stuck in a groove? Uh, it's not, it's, I wouldn't say it's conscious, no. I mean, and if, um, it, I'm not a very fast writer. It takes me quite a long time to write a play now, and um, so now, yeah. so it was easier before um, or quicker before. My perception is that I used to write quicker, but then that was probably like fueled by quite a lot of sort of side on curbs, side <laughs> or, or, or the sort of early twenties version of cheap red wine in kitchen. But um, but yes, I think I've got slower, but, uh, but also sort of uh, whatever you it has to. Whatever you write about, for me, because it takes it has to really hold my attention. It has to reward me being with that thing for probably at least four, maybe five years. So, so I think, but I think that's probably like it's again, it's not conscious, but I think that probably means that I subconsciously go, well, I've got to do something different from last time because I spent already spent a long time in in you know geopolitical, you know, the geopolitical situation between China and America. So there's that. Now I'm finding there are little things like oh, there's a little bit left over. So my next my play at the National is is about uh, in some way about science. Get so it has a link to the children. And then the thing I've just started another thing which has got a sort of astronomy connection. So it's like a bit very small, but it's, I just noticed there's a little bit more baton passing going on, and maybe that's just that sort of feeling of unfinished business, or maybe that's just the fact that when you do a vast amount of reading and uh, research around things invariably your brain gets sparked by something else and you just but but it's not like those plays are um so Chimerica which we'll come back to it's yeah. not that like that is just about um an issue piece about geopolitics it's not well, like not, the, the yeah. children is like a nuclear debate play so they've got something else going on as well it's not like you just one day you picked up the new scientist and read a story about some no, scientist and sure. have done something like that in fact, th- those are the least interesting parts. You know, I, uh, what the Chimerica was a really brilliant lesson in how little, like you, you, 
I needed to do the research for that play, but it was and like... And the three people in the world who haven't seen it, explain No, lots of people in the world have. That's the thing about theatre, isn't it? It's like, even when you're on in the West End, there's still there's a, massive, a, a tiny minority of people actually seen it. Um, Chimerica was a play uh, originally set over the 2012 US election about a fictional American pho- photographer who is led to believe that the tank man from the famous picture from the Tiananmen Square protest of 1989 is alive and well and living in New York. So he starts trying to find him and this is set against the backdrop of sort of a very changed political relationship between China and America and economic interdependency and um, an America that's sort of looking at the prospect of losing its global ascendancy to this other country. And did you start wanting to get into that issue and arrived at that kind of juicy premise of the photography? Finds no, out, no, I started the with the photograph. Got you. I was really interested in the photograph, and but the, but, the, but but as soon as I like and and I got interested in the photograph, became very aware of my own ignorance about China. So it was, and it was. So it wasn't at that point. It wasn't like I want to write a play about this. It was like, oh, that photograph I always looked at without really looking at it. I would love to. I, I've suddenly realised I don't really know that much about Tiananmen Square, the reasons for it. The, so I read that, and then and actually the thing you do the moment you Google China is like you go well. This this was and this would have been around two thousand and six. You suddenly I suddenly became that was a time when people were starting to really talk about the fact that China owned all America's debt, and 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 I thought God that's a big thing for me not to know, and who's like, <laughs> coming? And I so I just saw. I suppose I just did a little bit of wanting to educate myself on how the world was working so that's what, and then and then it just sort of grew and the fact that, that that became an idea for a play i think was probably provoked by the fact i had a commission for, for, for from the national studio and the thing is and i think if that commission had come from um the bush or the gate and with with, with no insult to them at all i wouldn't have had the i i don't think i would have had the idea because it would have been too big to go on that stage i wouldn't have been able to do it on those stages so the very fact the national studio commissioned me gave me a little bit of mental permission to think about something that was quite large a large canvas which you're not really encouraged you at that time you definitely weren't encouraged to do that much at my I'd had I had one commission at the bush at the time and i I don't think the play had even been on when i so so I didn't have any kind of produced work so why would anyone encourage me to write for like the Olivier or the so but it ended up at the Almeida. I know what you mean about it being um, a big play in terms of its scope and it plays out like a, people always in the reviews refer to it as being like a very sort of snappy TV drama, the way it right. kind of rollicked through and with a jolly successful revolve as well. Um, <laughs> very this successful time. revolve. <laughs> um, Got it in the end. So it, did, so it did in a sort of practical sense, it fitted us a small stage. It, well, yes, it did. But I mean, it's got, it had, we had 12 actors you know, like like you couldn't put twelve actors in a revolve on the bush, and the, and the play only worked because of that really beautiful design by Ayres, which was a sort of big cube which opened and unfolded and had yeah. projections going all around it. Yeah, yeah. and 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 so, I'm sorry, and brilliant direction by Lindsay, which meant that we could do that play with twelve actors, and we and we did, you know, we had a a language, a, a theatrical language that allowed us to to tell that story. And did you set out wanting it to be a thriller? Um, no, I had to realise that I had a really funny conversation. I can't remember when it, it was probably long into the writing of it, where my husband, who's much better on things like story than I am, said something. I was sort of trying to hold on to a darling, probably, and he said, "Well, you've written a thriller, so unless the, unless it's a unless it's about the thing that you're pursuing, then that's got no place in it." And I was the first time I went, "Have I?" Like I hadn't quite sort of processed it. I thought I was sort of I don't know. I just thought it was a sort of um, 
musing. <laughs> so, and that was really, that's really helpful, actually, because I, I don't, it's, it's quite unusual, I think, to use that, those, that kind of vocabulary in theatre, isn't it? And it's, and I, I think I, I really question the TV drama thing, because to me, that the whole point of the play is about turning a 2D, 2D object into a 3D object. So the moment that the tank man, who has only existed in a photograph for us as a sort of objectified image, becomes a real man standing in front of us, and you that is, I mean, I'm doing an adaptation of it at the moment and that's something I'm, str- I'm in my head, I'm, I'm, I'm only on the first episode, but I'm... For TV. Yeah. So we're going to do four, if it goes, we'll do four episodes, but I'm already going, I'm already in my head anxious about the ending because it, I don't think it's going to have the power or the meaning that it had on stage because it's... Because the play it's a, ends with that image with that but image made of, 3D. Yeah, of that man, of that man, A, being on stage and turning around and you seeing the whole of him and you, and you understand, so, so, and it's about... It's about a live human being being in front of you. It's not, do you know what I mean? So it's real. I think it's interesting about like, I don't know, it, in some ways it made me think, God, it's so bloody conservative. Like, if that, like the fact that there are short scenes and the fact that there is a story here, you know, I mean, it means that, that this is TV drama. I just, I just found that really dismaying in a way, I think. And I'm intrigued by the fact that you talked through this with your husband and I imagine with others sort of quite openly in terms of saying these are problems I'm having thinking about this you know there are lots of playwrights who will not show it to the world until there is absolutely a draft which they are in some way pleased with but you're someone who can sort of no, talk not, through no, it as you're going through but I had to with that but I normally don't like showing anyone anything until it's until I can really um, defend it and and say and so these are why I made well, this is why I made every single decision there when we try America it was it, I wouldn't it would the play would not have been the production wouldn't have been as have been what it was without Lindsay, but also dramaturgically, the play would not have been as good as it was without Lindsay's help. And so, and because it was just such a complicated machine, and and also I'm a I'm a terrible I write much too long on everything. And with that, you know, we, the first reading we did was like four and a half hours long, and so it, <laughs> I sort of needed help to go to because by that point I've been with it for so long as well, and and. She, she she just really helped to focus and refine and reimagine parts of the storytelling that weren't working. And so we did, she did we, you know, we did about a year of work together on it. Like, I wish that I could have done that on my own and gone, here is this beautiful, polished, finished thing and, yeah, go off and direct it. But the reality was that I really needed help on the final stages of that. And was it hard going through all of that through a play which you said has, uh, you know, a rollicking good complicated plot short scenes 12 actors was it hard to keep your eye on that big idea which you talked about at the very beginning i think that if you've chosen the right story then then everything is moving towards everything like do you know what i mean if you nsfw i had a set of notes on it from a theater who didn't produce it where they said we really like on the and then the play was pretty much exactly what got staged eventually, and they and then they said we really like this. Could you do you think you could rewrite it with the same characters as a workplace drama? And and I, I was I, I was quite baffled because a because I thought it was a workplace drama, and b I was like you are a literary team who l- don't understand how plays work. That like character isn't creative and created in isolation from narrative or theme or like the, all those you know you don't cre- you don't go like here's a random set of people who can just tell any story. You go every single you know part of a play is working in company with every other part of the play. And yeah. so 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 I think you realise quite early on if if those things aren't in in chorus aren't aren't in symphony together and if you if you've sort of set it right it's like train tracks if you set them right at the beginning if you get down the line then they'll still be running 
Whereas if you sort of a couple of degrees off at the beginning, by the time you get down there, one's over here, one's over here. So, sorry, it's not a very helpful me- <laughs> radio metaphor. Lots of pointing. Lots of visual. Um, <laughs> and um, because you've sort of been teasing a lot ahead to sort of future projects that you've had, um, I'm interested in, especially as someone who, you know, is after something, a big ideas, and already know you're sort of interested in geopolitics, the sort of year that we are in at the moment, 2017, in terms of Brexit and Trump and all of those things, is that something that you are um, turning your hand to? Well, I, I, I think the thing with plays often is that you you view them through the prism of current events, don't you? So everything gets a little tinge of a tinge of Trump um, <laughs> um, but weird but but weird, so weirdly but not really weirdly because because the way history moves takes is, is like tectonic plates that takes a number of years to move so therefore by the time you get a play about it it's obviously been in the air for a number of years um, the play at the National is sort of about um a distrust of experts weirdly and 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 that predates brexit and because and, i've been writing that for a very long time and but again you know that that sense that i, I don't know i've been just quite fascinated by the fact that we're in this sort of age of ex- extraordinary scientific thought really the amount of progress we've made over the last kind of century in terms of science is back is incredible and we've got so much information and knowledge, and yet, and we're in a place where we can reject it. We can go, actually, I don't, I'm not interested. In, and maybe, and maybe that's, and maybe that's valid. Maybe, maybe, a, there's just such a proliferation of information, and what do you do with that? B, what do you care if they discover the Higgs boson? If you're, you know, struggling with your everyday life, and how how does that, how does the human species? relentless drive or a lust for forward movement accommodate itself with the fact that the present is a bit fucked up <laughs> and so throughout this interview I've, I've slightly neglected um your screen work that's but right would you say that you are um moving in that direction more or you know will you always sort of find home on the stage um i would say that i first of all i feel very lucky to be a a playwright who really enjoys writing for screen because I think a lot of people have to sort of gird their loins a bit and do it to to put food on the table and I love writing for screen and I probably you notice in the introduction I said I'm a playwright and a screenwriter like so that that's probably like that uh, that will probably be the order I continue to think about it in well I'm sure I will I mean if I'm honest like that you know if I, if, you t- if you said to me you can't do one it would very quickly be screenwriting that I didn't do, but I love it as well, and so I'm very glad that I get to do both. I feel very lucky that I've worked on a producer level. I've worked with some brilliant people and people who've been incredibly generous to me and helped me and helped me learn things and um, defended my work and all those things. And then I've also like put a lot of time into work that's ne- never gone, which I find if I just I just find really difficult if I'm honest. Because in the theatre, most of the time, I've been lucky. There have been things I've written that have never gone on, but but I've been lucky that if I feel like it's ready and ready to go on, someone else has also thought that. So there's something deeply frustrating about not having the completion of that work. But but I'm yeah, I'm doing I'm doing a couple of things at the moment, and um, which are so I don't want to jinx it, but but I have started been doing this adaptation of America, which will be in four parts, and we've updated it to 2016. So is that BBC Channel Four, Netflix? What's I can't, I can't really say because I'm literally about to like I'm, the 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 thumb is hovering between yes or yay or nay. So I'm I I should find out within the next ten days or so, and I. I, I can guarantee you if I tell you who it is, then it won't happen. Um, <laughs> um, 
but yeah so that so so we've updated 2016 and it's just such a sort of um but i mean because trump is so much more obsessed with china than than you know such a bigger issue in this election than it even was in 2012 and also just kind of you know images and truth and all those things have just bubbled to the surface and in such a major way and 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 trump's relationship with the press and what you know freedom of the press and and um freedom of protest and all those things are things which are just a bit too tasty not to not to update it and i'm also i'm with lenny abramson as well who's who's who i've been a massive fan of since and and what's that um that is an adaptation of a book so yeah a book a a, a book book. (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so that's really fun and so just just to end i want to bring you back to this sort of big chunky anthology i've got here of lucy kirkwood plays one kill someone with it <laughs> and I was just wondering what, what you um, felt when I imagine you had to go through and compile, you had to do an intro to mm. it. Have you looked back on what you've done so far and been pleased, would you say? And satisfied? I. The reason I don't have to say it is because it, cause I, what I, I wouldn't want anyone who collaborated with me on any of those projects, projects to fit, to projects, sorry, horrible slip, to, to fit, take this as a slight to them because I am on one, in one sense very proud of all the work that I've done I also feel intense shame about everything that I've ever written in the past and I think that's probably what like I I approach every new play with I won't fuck it up this time because that's generally after a period of time it's what I feel about something even when you know take the example of Chimerica when they were sort of like round the board five stars this is absolutely amazing even when even in the clamour of that you're still thinking that it, as I say, sort of again, it's a sort of paradox. I, I, I feel, I feel incredibly proud of that production. I, I feel so because also, aside from anything else, I just felt like it was a real like such a bit of socialism that production. It was like a really brilliant. The company were just an extraordinary group of people who went, who all understood that whatever part they were playing, we were all like keeping this aeroplane in the sky, and so everyone was flapping their wings, and like, and and they just and the generosity and the and the teamwork of it you know down to the guy who was in the box in the middle turning it around you know just it was i just loved it and but there was a person in the middle of the box turning it yeah, around yeah yeah there was like someone with a crank and ben in the box Good God. <laughs> <laughs> um but when you say shame was it the is it the audacity of thinking this is worth people putting on and watching is it no the, not that what's the... it's very per- i think it's just like my um, my ambition most of the time ex- exceeds my ability so I, I think it's often about feeling you could have expre- found found the execution for an idea more elegantly or been more precise or um, been less just ungainly or I, did, I read this really beautiful we were talking about Phoebe Waller-Bridge earlier and there was a really beautiful beautiful in, um, interview between her and Kate Tempest in the Guardian a few months ago or a few weeks I can't remember what it was Kate Tempest said this beautiful thing which I, just, I very rarely read artists talking about their process and really recognize often I feel god I wish I did like that but with her I really just she said something about she was talking about like you have an idea and the idea is this shining golden thing and it's that and it's there in your head and the beauty of this thing is quite overwhelming and then you have to get it down on paper and however you get it down it never quite lives up to sort of the feeling you had in your head when you first conceived of it I I just completely identified with that so I think that's what I mean when I say shame which which is a source of some sort of internal failure to achieve the 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 glory of what it could have been (laughs) 
I'm, and that's as I say, that's I'm really proud of Chimeric and I'm really I'm proud of all of the work. And that and I didn't do any editing when when we um, for the anthology because I just thought actually I could just start rewriting Tinderbox. I could just rip bits out of it and start rewriting it. But actually, that's who I was as a writer at the, in, in that moment, and that's how I chose to uh, express those ideas. And I don't really want to be dishonest about that. I still Beckett thing, isn't it? Fail again. <laughs> Fail better. <laughs>